ready, get your seatbelts fastened. You're about ready to land on the planet Japan with Amy and Doug. Coming to you direct from the storage shed behind Okayama Castle, it's episode 37 of Planet Japan for February 15th, 2006. Everything you always wanted to know about Mormons in Japan. In this week's show, you'll finally learn what a monkey nut really is, and you'll discover the wonderful world of talking urinal cakes. And of course, you'll hear part one of our interview with Matt and Jeff on Mormons in Japan. All that and much more on this week's Planet Japan. Stay tuned. Welcome, everyone. This is the Planet Japan, episode 37. I'm Doug DeLong. Amy's not here this week, and she'll be gone next week also. She's hit the road. She's out and about. She's out in the Netherlands somewhere doing something God only knows what. But she'll be back soon. In the meantime, I'll be flying solo. Well, except not exactly solo. I've rounded up a couple of Mormons to help me out this week and next week. I uh, did a two-part interview. Actually, it was a one-part interview that I've divided into two parts to make it seem more important. And I'll play the first half this week, and then I'll do the second half next week. But uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. First of all, I want to do some uh, email house cleaning. I want to run through a few of the, of the thousands and thousands of emails that we get here at the Planet Japan. And we've been getting some pretty interesting ones lately. So I'll do the emails, and then I'll get right into uh, part one of my interview with actual, real-life Mormons in Japan. Mormons in Japan, right here on the planet Japan. Okay, now our uh, first email is from Brian Delaney, sent to us from Ireland. And uh, if you know, if you listened to the show last week, we were completely confused by the term monkey nuts. We thought maybe it might have been a reference to a monkey's nuts, but, well, we weren't quite sure. Somebody in England apparently was going to push a monkey nut with his nose uh, some ridiculous distance. Turns out, according to Brian, that the term monkey nuts means uh, peanuts that are still in their shell. And he says they're traditional for Halloween. Well, there you go. Monkey nuts, peanuts still in the shell. It's apparently a British-English term. Uh, I think most Americans probably... uh, aren't aware of that, so now I have educated all you Americans and everyone else. Next time you hear anybody talking about a monkey nut, you will know exactly what they're talking about, and you'll be a better person for it. Thank you, Brian, from Ireland. Monkey nuts. Uh, Let's see, what else we got? Okay, we got another email from Taylor Mitchell. Taylor says, uh, Hello, Amy and Doug. I'm sitting in class with Liam and his bosom buddy, James, and was curious as to why in various anime such as Full Metal Panic Fumofu, they put salt on their watermelon. I'm considering doing it to a watermelon for myself, but I'm unsure as to the correct procedure and quantity of salt. Any ideas? Now, this, uh, this was a kind of a surprising thing for me. I didn't realize that salting watermelon was such a huge international controversy, but uh, I've done some research on the Internet, and apparently some cultures think it's uh, the entirely correct thing to do. Others think it is like, you know, a sin against God or something, and they just won't hear of it, and they think it's completely inappropriate and disgusting. So, (laughs) there you go. As for myself, I grew up in Colorado, and I always put salt on my watermelon, and I guess I just assumed that everyone else did too. Apparently, that is not the case. I found a page, a very interesting page on the Internet, where they have a great debate about this very subject, whether or not it is appropriate to put salt 
on your watermelon. If you'll bear with me here, I'll give you a couple of interesting examples of what people think, kind of give you the flavor of this uh, really, I think, really important uh, debate about salting watermelon. Somebody sent a message from the north of Mexico and said, here in the north of Mexico, we always salt watermelons. Popular wisdom says if you don't, your stomach will get diarrhea. Well, there you go. In the north of Mexico, they, um, they put salt on their watermelon to prevent themselves from getting diarrhea. In Egypt, I think it is not uncommon to eat watermelon with something salty, say feta cheese. Yeah, there you go. Watermelon and feta cheese. I've never actually tried that, and I think I probably uh, never will. Now, here, here's the key. Somebody says, salted watermelon is delicious if you don't over-salt. That's the whole key. Obviously, if you put too much salt on your watermelon, you're going to uh, end up with something that's pretty disgusting. A little bit of salt will bring out, you know, that, that sweetness in the watermelon, and it really makes it uh, quite delicious. Uh, let's see. Oh, in France, eating watermelon with slices of smoked ham, which is uh, salted, is considered to be a good meal starter. But you can't use just any watermelon to do it. It has to be very sweet and tasty. Also, the salt has to be quite dissolved and in very small amounts. There you go. Once again, small amounts, people. Watch how much salt you put on your, on, on your damn watermelon. Don't oversalt it. Okay, here's my very favorite. This is a message from uh, someone in Austria. I am Austrian, so please grant me forgiveness for my bad English grammar. She says, in order to pleasure myself with a watermelon, I find it good to put on it my own salty mixture, which indeed is very much fun to make. Well, there you go. The image of someone pleasuring themselves with a watermelon is uh, something I'm trying to get out of my head. And it may take a couple days, but I am determined that I will indeed get it out of my head within that time frame. Well, there you go. There's the great international debate. If you want to weigh in on this, on, on whether or not it's a good idea to put salt on your watermelon, I suppose it's as good a topic as any to, you know, throw around and kick it around and toss it around and bounce it around or whatever you want to do with it. Just send your ideas to planetjapan05 at yahoo.com, and we will take it from there. Okay, on to the next email. Um... This email is from uh, Tom Kohler from Oswego. I think that's in New York. And he says, yes, I am related to the company that makes urinal cakes. He also says, I've never been to Japan, but I'm planning to in the near future, and I would like to know more about where to bathe with monkeys. Um, yeah, that's right. A few weeks ago, we talked about places in Japan where you can go uh, hot tubbing with these snow monkeys. It's quite a unique adventure. He ends his email by saying, uh, monkeys make me so horny. Okay, now that's a little scary, and I'm, I'm uh, not sure what to make of that. But here's the interesting part of the email, I think, as far as I'm concerned, is this whole uh, idea of, of urinal cakes. Urinal cakes is a subject that I think just doesn't get enough discussion in today's world. And so I'm going to take care of that single-handedly right now. Urinal cakes. Now, uh, I believe it was uh, Marie Antoinette who first said, let them eat urinal cakes. Is that right? I think that's right. Although they do look like cakes, and, and they do look delicious, I guess I would suggest that you probably shouldn't attempt to actually eat the urinal cake, because uh, at the very least, you're going to get a stomachache. Now, here's... <laughs> I, did, I did some research on this uh, subject, because, you know, you got to research your, your subject before you really just throw it out there. And here's what I've discovered. Not only are there just your run-of-the-mill urinal cakes out there, these days, in this high-tech world that we live in, someone has developed talking urinal cakes. And I think that's, that's fantastic. That's amazing. 
That is what the world needs, and I'm glad it's finally here. Talking urinal cakes. Now, um, there's a company called Wizmark. Wizmark, what a great name. They've developed these talking urinal cakes, okay? <laughs> and so here's what people are saying about the, um, the Wizmark talking urinator. This is a vice president of marketing at the Country Music Television Network, and they've developed a, um, a pre-recorded message that they're going to have installed in these urinal cakes. Here's what he says. The new interactive urinal communicator from Wismark enables CMT to target a very captive and vulnerable audience. The social protocols of the use of a urinal, the unwritten rule not to look left or right, guarantees undivided and undistracted visual attention along with the concurrent audio delivery of the Don't Miss Outlaws on CMT message. He continues, this new marketing tool is unexpected, unapologetic, and good-humored. Now, you, you may be wondering exactly how this uh, new technology works, and, and here's what happens. The Wismark device, the Wismark uh, urinal cake, begins when motion detectors are set off. And I guess the, the motion detectors are set off when somebody, you know, approaches the, the urinal. The device can additionally be outfitted with flashing lights, a waterproof anti-glare lenticular display, whatever the heck that is, and various images. Each Wismark can withstand more than 10 thousand flushes. So there you go. This is this is high tech at its very best. This is American ingenuity. Nobody can beat Americans when it comes to urinal cake high technology. And it, it makes me proud to be an American. Let me just say that right now. Now they also have uh, public service messages like for example, don't drink and drive, which you know, I guess in this particular case would be entirely appropriate and probably very useful. So the next time guys that you're taking a whiz don't be surprised if your urinal cake starts talking to you. I think that's all I have to say on the subject. Let's move along. Uh, now, as you know, we just uh, celebrated Valentine's Day here in Japan and around the world. And somebody sent me an email to alert me to um, this Japanese character named Unchikun. <laughs> I never heard of Unchikun before. But uh, Ty writes and says, Hello, Doug and Amy. On the topic of Valentine's Day, I walked through my local supermarket and found a little display of Valentine's poops, Unchikun. I know I've seen the cutesy collection of crap before, but I don't recall seeing it for Valentine's Day. Maybe you can use your great powers of knowledge of Japanese culture to fill me in on when or how poo became Valentine's presence. I know Japan likes to cutesify, that's true, everything, but this is a bit much. Well, okay, if, you, if you've never seen Unchikun, what it is, is is a little character that looks like a, a turd, basically. A very cute turd, but it's a turd nonetheless. Unchi in Japanese means poop, basically. Kun is the, is the name uh, you give to a child, uh, kind, of, kind of like San, kind of like Mr. Okay? If you're an adult, they call you uh, San. If you're a boy, they call you Kun. So basically, what you have is, um, is Mr. Poop. <laughs> Poophead, maybe. That might be appropriate. Anyway, it's this character, and uh, I guess, I don't know, it's probably got its own manga or something. And they're, they've been marketing it as, uh, as chocolate. So it's, it's chocolate poop, I guess. And it's for kids, basically. Kids love it. And re really, what's not to love about chocolate poop? Now, uh, you probably think I'm putting you on, but I am not. I would never do such a thing because I have integrity. So I will put a link on the blog, and you all can go over there and take a look at it and let you know. Let me know what you think about Unchikun. It's one of those only in Japan kind of things, and that's why we exist here on the planet Japan, to keep you up to date on these 
on the on the latest and greatest happenings in Japan. Okay, I think that's going to about cover it for the emails this week. Let's go ahead and jump into our interview with the uh, Mormons. Now, I can't think of a really good way to segue from talking urinal cakes and chocolate poop into Mormons, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Okay, let's see. Talking urinal cakes. They, they talk to you, and, uh, and uh, Mormons talk to you. I guess that's a good enough segue, so I'm going to go with that. Now, the... Um, the Mormons, if you live in Japan, you are very aware of the Mormons. They seem to be out and about everywhere, and they're easily recognizable. They pretty much wear the same same colored kind of gray, dark gray suit, and they, they have on these space-age bicycle helmets, and they whip around on their bicycles, and they're out there doing their best to um, convince the Japanese that Mormonism is the way to go. Now, I've had uh, occasional chats with these guys, but... Uh, I've never actually sat down and had a lengthy discussion with them, so I thought, what better time to do it, and what better place than the planet Japan to bring them in and uh, ask them everything that I've always wanted to know about Mormonism, but was afraid to ask. So we're going to do part one this week, and then we'll finish up next week with part two. And with that, here we go with our interview with Jeff White and Matt Oldroyd, a couple of very nice guys. Hi, guys. Hello. Why don't you uh, go ahead and give us a quick intro. Okay. I'm Elder White. I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah, and I came to Japan about a year and three months ago. I'm Elder Oldroyd, and I came to Japan six weeks before he did, so a year and four months ago. Okay, great. Well, I got lots of questions for you. First of all, I noticed that you call yourselves Elder White and Elder Oldroyd? Yeah. Oldroyd, okay. Now, what's, why do you do that? In the church, Elder is a title of being a missionary. Okay. So missionaries, all the guy missionaries are called elder so-and-so, mm-hmm. and all the female missionaries are called sister so-and-so. Now, is there anybody actually named so-and-so? No? I haven't, okay. met, I haven't met one yet. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Now, when you're amongst yourselves, do you refer to each other by your first names? We have a rule that we're supposed to call everyone elder or sister and then their last name. But in the apartment, sometimes I call him Jeff. That is his first name. Okay, Jeff and... Matt. Matt? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you kind of slip up sometimes? Yes. But for the most part, you always refer to each other as elder so-and-so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, you've been here how long? I've been here about a year and three months. And Year and four months. Year and four months. So you didn't come over together? No. We, before we come to Japan, we live in a um, missionary training center mm-hmm. for two and a half months and learn Japanese and the, the way that we teach the message about okay. our church. So you have kind of a training period. A training period. In Utah. In Utah or other parts of the world. For mm-hmm. people that go to Japan on their mission, it's two months in Provo, Utah at the mm-hmm. Missionary Training Center. Okay. It's the biggest one. In the world, there's about 16 missionary training centers. Okay, great. Now, uh, how is it you ended up in Japan? Did you get to say or did, did you get to say, I'd prefer to go to Japan or did they just kind of assign Japan to you? When we decide that we want to go on a mission, we send in a paper that says, I want to go on a mission. And on the paper, we write if we've had any past language experience at high school or anything, or if we've been to a foreign country or anything. And then we send that into the church, and they decide for us. So we get a paper back that says, go to Japan, please. Oh, okay. So were you, were you happy with Japan when you saw, look, I'm going to Japan. Was that exciting, or was that a little, a little uh, anxious for, for you? For me, it was a little shock, but I was happy to <laughs> go to someplace cool like Japan. So. Oh, Japan's definitely cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
I always wanted to learn another language. And 40 years ago, my uncle served a mission in Japan. Oh, really? In, in the Nagoya area. Mm-hmm. And also, in our church, we have couple missionaries, old couples, grandpas and grandmas. And five years ago, he served another mission in Sendai. Oh, really? So I was really excited to take after my uncle and come to Japan and learn Japanese. You're carrying on the family tradition. Yes. Okay. Now, is it true you're required, everybody who graduates from the university is required to do a two-year mission? No. Actually, I'm still a university student. I'm, I have about one year done. I okay. still have about three years. But in the church, you're not required to go on a mission. There's lots of regulations and stuff that you have to, you have to come up to. Mm-hmm. There's lots of requirements. Requirements. <laughs> That's the word I was thinking of. Lots of requirements. And so not everyone in the church can go on a mission. So, Really? What percentage of people end up doing missions? A couple years back, there was about 60,000 missionaries mm-hmm. in the world serving a mission. But since they, they, they call um, raising the bar mm-hmm. for the requirements for the, the worthiness of mm-hmm. missionaries, and now there's only about 52,000. It went down 8,000 missionaries because of the, the worthiness of missionaries. The worthiness of missionaries, what does that mean exactly? Well, in our church we have a thing called the law of chastity, mm-hmm. so like no sex before marriage and you can't look at porn and stuff uh, like that. Mm, that's a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then there's other teachings in our church. One is the word of wisdom. So you mean if somebody has sex before marriage or looks at porn, they're not allowed to become a they, missionary? They need to repent, and that takes time, usually about a year. And then yeah. after that, they can go on a mission if they've repented. Oh. But normally when people do something like that, it's something they do secretively. How do people find out about that? <laughs> That's part of the repentance process, we uh, call it. You, so it's, it's kind of Is uh, you recognize that you did something bad. So and you, you confess? You confess to the church leaders. There's, ah, okay. there's leaders that are called in the church that can help you go through those the mm-hmm. repentance process and make sure that you're worthy enough to serve the Lord on this mission uh, and ah, go on a mission. So Interesting. Okay, so you guys are here for a couple of years, and you're about halfway through yes. at yes. this point. Give me an idea of what a typical day for you is like. All right, our typical day is we wake up at 6.30 a.m. every day, mm-hmm. have breakfast, shower. By 8 o'clock, we start our study session. We study... From 8 to 10.30. Now, when you say we, who does that include? Just the two two. of you? Yeah, there's two of us living in an apartment right now. Okay. And we start our study session at 8 o'clock. For two and a half hours, we study the gospel. We study our religious texts, and then we also study Japanese. Okay, now, did you study Japanese before you came to? I studied one year in high school, but Mm -hmm. I just remembered hiragana by the time I got to Japan. So. I studied Spanish and German in high school, and for three weeks I was an exchange student in Germany after I graduated high school, but I never had studied Japanese before I came okay. on a mission. So now you're engaged in Japanese study as well? Yes, every morning for a half an hour. Do you have a Japanese teacher then? No. How do you, what method do you use? We just studied Tongo and Bumpo and Gumbaru. Okay. So <laughs> just talk to people every day. Okay. So I've, ha- I've had two Japanese companions where my partner is Japanese, and that really helped me learn Japanese. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, great. So you do studies in the morning? Yeah. Okay. We study in the morning, and then every day at 10.30 we leave the apartment, and we go out and start our proselyting efforts. Mm-hmm. And so every day we're out in the streets walking around talking to people in Japanese, so that really helps our Japanese skills grow better. Okay. 
So we do that from 10.30 every day till about 9 o'clock at night every single day. Wow. So that's the m biggest part of your day. Yeah, that's basically it's walking around. We have lots of people that are listening to our message, so mm -hmm. we schedule lessons with them. And then we also, like I said, do street contacting, go visit people in their houses and stuff. Do you do this door-to-door -door stuff? We do door-to-door -door sometimes. Mm -hmm. But in Okayama, like, it's such a big city. We like going to the covered mall. Right. And... Going, walking around in it, talking to people. Okay. And That's easier, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. My favorite way of proselyting is riding on the bike, have the helmet on, and and <laughs> people stop and look at the gaijin. So. Okay, so um, give me some kind of idea of the conversation that you have when you approach somebody on the street. In Japanese or English? English would be better, probably. English, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> First, we go up and we ask people if we can talk to them for just a minute, mm -hmm. and then when we first start talking to them, like, if we just came right out and started saying, oh, we're missionaries for this church, we teach about, you know, God and Jesus Christ and everything, people would get kind of surprised. So first off, like, we contact them, and then we start talking to them about their daily life, ask questions about their family, or if they're, like, high school kids or college kids, ask them, like, what they're studying, try to make a relationship to them. And then after that, like, we can introduce ourselves, you know, that we're missionaries for the church, and just tell them like what we're doing like with the young people we teach a free English class twice a week mm -hmm. so we like showing that off to them just because people in Japan like English so sure free English is good so you're giving free English I'm trying to sell English yeah you guys are kind of undercutting me here but <laughs> yours is yours is better than ours so we just kind of go and goof off with them and have a uh, fun time so okay we don't they don't really learn a lot of English <laughs> but and then after that like we can tell them that we're you know, we're talking about the purpose of life and what kind of relationship we have with God and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And if they have interest, like, we either try to grab their phone number so we can call them again, make an appointment so we can meet them. Mm -hmm. Or, like, even if they want, we can teach them about, the, about our church right there on the street mm -hmm. and just go sit down on a bench and talk to people and share, the me share a message with them. Uh, what percentage of the people you approach on the street actually end up engaging with you? I would say about everyone that we actually throw our voice out and talk to that listens to our message is probably 1%. 1%. 1%. So 99% of the time yeah. you're getting rejected? You talk to 100 people <laughs> and then one person listens to the message. Uh -huh. it, within that 100, there's lots of people that we talk to for a minute and it's a good talk, but yeah. the people that actually start listening to our message is probably about 1%. Are most people um, at least polite about it? About... 60% of the people are nice about it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Most people just don't know, and they see the name tag, and yeah. it, we're in Japan, so they are bukyo, and yeah. that's the way they have lived their lives up till now. Mm -hmm. so. Do you think it's more difficult to do your job here in Japan where there's a strong Buddhist tradition than it would be in a Western country where there's a more Christian tradition? Well, for me, of course, there's lots of people that are bukyo in Japan, but in America or Christian countries, there's other sects in mm -hmm. the other ones. And so we are obviously Mormon, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So mm -hmm. if you're in Mexico, your trouble is having people listen to the one sect Mormon. In Japan, it's having the people listen to Christianity. Right. So. Okay. Well, um, let's see. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Mormonism. Now, Mormonism is kind of a uniquely American 
religion, isn't it? The roots are in America? It was started in America, yes, mm -hmm. in New York. Right. Is when, back in 1835, mm -hmm. is when the church was established. 1830. <laughs> is when the church was established, but, like, our church history starts back in 1820. Okay. Is when it starts. Mm -hmm. Give me kind of a thumbnail version of how Mormonism differs from more mainstream Protestantism or uh, some of the differences, some of the things that might be the same. One of the main differences, I'll just give you a quick explanation of our church. Back in 1820, there was a person by the name of Joseph Smith, and he was going to all sorts of different religions trying to find the right one, but all of their teachings conflicted with one another. So he decided to go to the Bible to try to find which church he should join. So he studied the Bible, and then he read a he read a scripture in the Bible one day. It's in James one five for anyone that knows the Bible. But mm -hmm. the scripture says that if you lack any sort of wisdom or anything, or you want to know the truth to something, all you have to do is ask God, and God will answer you. Mm -hmm. So he read that scripture. He decided, well, I think I'll ask God and see how it goes. So he went to a grove of trees one day in 1820. He knelt down and he prayed to God. And then God and Jesus Christ actually came down to this earth and chose Joseph Smith as a new prophet for this dispensation. So Joseph Smith was made a prophet, mm -hmm. like prophets of old, like Moses, Adam, Abraham, Noah. And through being a prophet, he had lots of necessary things for God's true church restored to him, such as priesthood power. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard about priesthood power, but... Mm -hmm. It's the authority to act in God's name restored to this earth. So that was restored through Jesus Christ, through Joseph Smith. And now in this church, m one main thing that differs from us and other churches is we actually have a living prophet in the church who guides and directs us. That's the leader of the church That's at the moment? The, yeah. His yeah. name is Gordon B. Hinckley. Mm -hmm. He lives in Salt Lake City right now. Now, how is it Mormons ended up in Salt Lake City? So Joseph Smith became a prophet in New York and established a church in 1830 and there was lots of religious persecution and so our people moved to Missouri and Nauvoo and other parts of the eastern United States and then after Joseph Smith was killed in Carthage jail He was killed in jail? He was killed in jail. The mob came in and shot him. Now when you say mob you don't mean um, mafia do you? mob of about <laughs> 150 to 200 a men. A mob of people came in. A mob of people that didn't like the church. Really? Was there yeah. something specific they were angry about or? Well. They just had too much to drink that night or what was going they on? They just didn't like Joseph Smith and the people because in in Nauvoo and other areas when we established cities, mm -hmm. we, like our people would build roads and houses and make pretty cities they didn't like that and they were getting scared and so they thought if they killed Joseph Smith they mm. would kill the Mormon church I see so really what what year was that how old, how old was Joseph Smith when he was killed he was killed in 1844 June 27th he was born December 23rd 1805 therefore he was 39 years 39 and a half wow. years so old. he was still pretty young pretty young okay so then the next prophet called through divine revelation Brigham Young mm -hmm. was the prophet and took all the people across the plains to Salt Lake City Utah to mm -hmm. relieve themselves of the religious persecution there are Mormon churches all around the US right 
Yes. But what percentage of Mormons would you say live in Utah? Seven percent. Only seven percent of the of all the Mormons in the U.S. Only seven percent live in Utah. Oh, of all the Mormons in the U.S., I would say I think there's about four million members in the U.S. and a little over a million in Utah. So twenty-five percent. Oh, okay. But uh, let's look at it a different way. How, of all the people in Utah, what percentage are Mormon? In the state of Utah, thirty-three percent are Mormons. Mm-hmm. In some oh, of the a little more. A little bit more, probably. 70% in Utah, 40% in Salt Lake. Oh. In Salt Lake City, the capital city, mm-hmm. only 40% are Mormon. But in the whole state, it's in more the whole like state. 70? 70, close to 70%, hmm. probably. Now there are missionaries like you guys in lots of countries? Throughout all the world. Okay. And what is your, uh, what's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish as a missionary? We are trying to tell people the truth of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. and so people can receive baptism and the essential ordinances to have eternal families and live together with our Heavenly Father in heaven for time and all eternity with true happiness. Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) So essentially you, you would like to convert Japanese into Mormons? Would you put it that way? To put it that way would make it sound almost selfish. I want to help my Japanese brothers and sisters mm-hmm. throughout all the world come unto Jesus Christ by receiving this gospel, following its teachings, and being able to receive the blessings that Heavenly Father has restored for us. So you're not trying to convert them? Of course, <laughs> to bring them through Jesus Christ, right? they need to join the church and be converted unto this gospel. So yes, that is a goal. Yeah. But Would it be your main goal? Of course, like I, w- I would like... Like, I like seeing people come unto the church, so yes, that is one of my main goals. But if I can help people's lives and help their life become a better thing, that's also one of my main goals that I have right now. Okay, there you go. There's the end of part one of our interview with Matt and Jeff. We'll finish that up next week for you right here on the Planet Japan. Thanks a lot for listening this week. Don't forget to go over to our website at planetjapan.org. And there you can, of course, vote for us if you haven't done that for February. And you'll also see another link there on the homepage to uh, a new website called discoverpodcast.com. And it's a kind of a really cool little uh, visual podcast directory where you'll find lots of interesting and different uh, podcasts. You'll see our logo there for Planet Japan. If you click on it, that'll take you over to the website and uh, it'll help us out on the rankings over there. Also, I've added a new link over to our iTunes page where if you would like to help us promote Planet Japan, you can uh, write a review of the show right there on the iTunes homepage. That would be very cool. Our email address, if you'd like to leave us a message, is planetjapan05 at yahoo.com. Or, of course, you can leave a note on the blog where you'll also find this week's show notes and links. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. (laughs) 